everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm Chris Case, and today we've got questions. These questions are were intended for our 200th episode. We had so many. We're doing a Q&A today to answer all those questions. And we have Coach Trevor Connor, Coach Ryan Kohler, and Rob Pickles. Are you a coach? No, let's just call me physiologist. <laughs> physiologist Rob Pickles. Hi, this is Jim Miller. I'm Chief of Sport Performance at USA Cycling. It's been a dream of mine to do more and help develop USA Cycling coaches. Our partnership with Fast Talk Labs means any current licensed USA Cycling coach can join Fast Talk Labs for free and get the craft of coaching with Joe Friel, a whole library of sports science content and networking opportunities with other experienced coaches. The craft of coaching with Joe Friel is an awesome opportunity for coaches to become better, more successful, and happier. Learn more at fasttalklabs.com. All right. So, as I said, these came from many listeners around the world for our 200th episode. We did not get to answer them, but let's dive right in to these questions. This first one comes from Yago Vandermost, who probably has the most awesome name I've ever heard. He has a question about tools and what tools do you use? He's restarting as a trainer and a coach. I'll read the question now. As I restart as a trainer coach of a cycling team after having been my own coach for the last 20 years, a lot has changed, specifically in the way we register and analyze our workouts. Exert, intervals.icu, and the main platforms I use for keeping track of my own programs. But what do you use as coaches? What do you recommend to track and administer your athletes? And what are the reasons behind your choices? And to note, the team he's training and coaching is 15 to 18-year-olds. Ryan, you coach juniors. <laughs> I'll start with you. What, what would you have to say? Well, I like his question. I like that he mentioned intervals.icu because that's the one I use also and am getting my juniors into that. Mm. And um, it's nice. It's, uh, it gives us the ability to kind of get the structure we need, give them some of that training training structure, really, just let them see what's coming up. But I really like how it allows you to put notes in there and you can basically put notes anywhere. So I actually find myself with them using more of those notes of just putting in like a, a weekly note or a daily note to communicate different things to them outside of just like, hey, here's a here's a structured workout, you need to focus on this thing. It gives us the ability to focus on all the other things that impact their ability to ride and progress. Mm-hmm. Trevor, I know that we've fielded a question similar to this previously. I think you have your own method. Describe that for people, or, or how would you answer Yago's question here? Well, I use a, a variety of tools, and it probably would be better to just get it all into one system, but <laughs> I've kind of evolved the way I evolved, and, and this is where I've ended up. I don't use any of these tools for providing plans. I, I have something that I built in Excel and I really like, and I've just stuck with that. Yeah, I think a lot of these tools have good training plan builders. They just don't work the way that I want them to work. So I've just stuck with my Excel sheet. And that was, uh, you know, I put in my notes here, that was my answers. I'm not going to promote one tool over another. I think it's, as a coach, you need to figure out how do you coach, Mm -hmm. what's your focus, and, and what tool works best with you. For data analysis, I love WKO. You can completely geek out on, on that program. For interacting with my athletes, I tend to use training peaks. And, and similar to Ryan, what I like most is just that ability to communicate. Mm-hmm. You can add notes. You can put notes in every workout. You can put notes on days. 
And I really want that communication back and forth more so than the particulars of, of the data. I'm glad to hear Intervals ICU does that. Like I said, that's kind of why I stick with uh, training peaks. I think when you're dealing with athletes of this age, I do think that communication, hearing how they're feeling, hearing what's going on with them and be able to write things to them, to be able to communicate with them is really important. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, maybe for all of you too, how much flexibility you have, like if an athlete comes to you and they want to use a certain platform because they're familiar with it, or alternatively, you're really into using something like Training Peaks and they're just not into it. Do you say, I'm maybe not the coach for you, or do you try to be flexible and work with what they're interested in using? Or is it a case-by-case thing? I mean, I know with juniors particularly, they a lot of them just don't have the experience of knowing what to even look at. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with Whether it's training peaks, intervals, exert, they just either don't have the power meter, the heart rate monitor, they're just maybe getting into it. So I'm really flexible with them. And, and if they don't use that, then I'll still use it for myself just for planning. But then we might just do more phone calls, more texts. And like Trevor said, the communication piece, I think, is the really the overarching one. Mm-hmm. So whatever they want to do, you know, we can kind of flex to, uh, to their needs. But yeah, the communication is key. It, it really doesn't come down to the platform. It's more just need the communication with them. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, I think that you make a really good point there, right? Working with juniors, they might be tied to their phones, they might be tied to their computers, but for some reason they seem like they can't really be tied to Training Peaks or any of these other softwares. And getting that adherence is oftentimes really hard. So I like your technique of maybe using it for yourself and planning, but then only really utilizing that in regard to the athlete for communication. It's a really important thing that we're communicating with the athletes in a manner that works for them and not necessarily trying to force something onto them that uh, isn't appropriate. All right, let's move on to our next question here. This one comes from Paul Sill. He's in the UK, and it has to do with cardiac arrhythmias. He writes, Nearly all my life I have trained or competed in sports. I'm now 52, and my main sport for the last 13 years has been cycling. After some recent investigations by an assigned cardiologist at our local hospital, it has been recognized I have at least two heart conditions. The investigation started after I reported extremely high heart rates of up to 260 beats per minute to my doctor. These occurrences happened only maybe seven times over a period of six years, mostly whilst riding a bike or indoor trainer. After some research and listening to podcasts like Fast Talk, I suspected I had infrequent atrial fibrillation brought on by being occasionally overstressed. Investigations on my heart have included ECGs, wearing monitors, echocardiograms, and having a cardiac MRI. No occurrence of high heart rates have been picked up by the hospital's monitors, but I was able to send them screenshots of activities where they had recorded. However, the MRI found left ventricle hypotrophic cardiomyopathy, which in my case is not suspected as serious, and also left and right ventricular dilation. The cardiologist's report has stated that these conditions are related to having an, quote, athletically trained heart. In conclusion, my cardiologist has said that I will have to go through a period of detraining of which we are yet to speak about. I'm disappointed with this outcome and also feel confused. What will, quote, detraining involve with respect to which sports I can do and what will be the limitations on duration and intensity? Are the origins of these conditions mainly from years of doing long aerobic rides or sustained VO2 efforts? 
if I continue to do activities at either of these levels, which would be more dangerous? For my exercise needs going forward, would it be safer to concentrate on weight training and just use my watt bike or rower for short, intense intervals to supplement the weight training? I still need to have exercise in my life. I still want to ride my bike. I've not long since bought a gravel bike, which I was going to use for touring. Can I still do this? A lot of questions here. I can literally feel the frustration and concern that Paul feels here. I've heard these questions many times before from people that um, have developed heart arrhythmias. None of us here is doctors, but we have experience with this in some form or another. Let's try to pick apart this question or these many questions from Paul and try to give him some uh, good advice. And I'm certain there are other listeners out there that can benefit from this advice. Trevor, I'll start with you. What would you have to say to start with for Paul? There's a lot of things to dissect here. And I, I think a lot of our listeners are actually dealing with this because it's becoming more and more common in athletes who have been training in endurance sports for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think one of the really important things to understand is that for a long time, I think AFib was treated as kind of a monolith. You know, it's the same for everybody. And what you're seeing more and more now is this recognition that AFib in athletes is very different from AFib in a sedentary population. As a matter of fact, you know, I've got this discussion article published in, a, in, in the European Heart Journal called Atrial Fibrillation in Athletes and Non-Athletes, Evidence of Different Causative Mechanisms. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I found a whole bunch of very recent studies that uh, kind of the same thing that are getting at the, this is different. So here's another one that's called Atrial Fibrillation in Athletes, Pathophysiology, Clinical Presentation, Evaluation, and Management. And as you saw in the description from Paul, AFib in athletes, often what you're seeing is some sort of cardiac remodeling. We actually just did an episode on that that turned out to be really popular. So I think there's a lot of people who are wondering about this and struggling with this. Mm -hmm. The general belief in the research is in endurance athletes, you see an enlargening of the chamber of the ventricles, particularly the left ventricle, but you don't see any sort of thickening of the wall. You also can see the same thing in the atrium. So when you get this very large chamber but you don't have a very thick wall. Some of the belief is that just makes it harder for the heart to keep pumping. Mm-hmm. Another part of this belief or what we, you, you see in a lot of the past research is, is different in strength athletes. When you do strength work, you don't see an enlarging of the chamber, but you see thickening of the, the, the chamber walls. In that study that I just mentioned, the atrial fibrillations in athletes, pathophysiology, clinical presentations, evaluation, and management they basically pointed to three potential causes for AFib. One is this cardiac remodeling. Another one is essentially scarring, so fibrosis. And the third one is, is inflammation. And certainly when you see athletes working hard and training hard, you can see inflammation around the heart. So those are the three potential causes. But we're still really early in the research of looking at AFib just in athletes, seeing what's causing it seeing how we address it, and seeing the long-term impacts of it. I'll stop there. There's a ton more we can talk about, but I certainly want to let Ryan and, and Rob jump into this one. Yeah, I, Trevor, I think that you did a great job of talking about remodeling changes that are going to occur naturally in an athlete. You know, and, and that's why, as referenced in here, uh, an athletically trained heart is in some regards something that we would expect those changes or some of the changes associated with that might also be associated with AFib. 
The thing I'd like to do, however, is is really to take a step back. And what I'm reading from this is that Paul doesn't necessarily have a diagnosed condition of AFib. It's that he is inferring this from the research that he's been doing. And, and I'm very happy. I think it's great when patients and when individuals are involved sort of in managing their own care, because sometimes you're your own best advocate. At the same time, I am a little bit concerned with that because uh, high heart rates of 260 beats a minute are, are a bit high than we would expect for an AFib. And I only say that to, to say, I don't think that we can proceed with necessarily giving recommendations on a specific condition that's occurring here. You know, 260 is really the upper end of what we would expect for a ventricular tachycardia. And that's a very different situation from AFib. I think the thing that we know and we can understand from this, right, is that stress is on your body. Emotional stress, physical stress from exercise, all of those can have specific short-term and long-term effects on the heart due to things like, as Trevor said, remodeling, fibrosis, increased cortisol release, all of that can have some deleterious effects. So for me, the biggest thing for Paul or for anyone else is to take any symptoms that people have, especially if they feel a fluttering, if people are feeling a, uh, a lightheadedness or if they're fainting, those are all very serious signs. Don't take any of this stuff lightly. And, and I encourage Paul and anyone else to really follow up with the cardiologist. The hard thing about the healthcare system is that you can go in for all of these studies like he's done. ECGs, monitors, echoes, cardiac MRI, and you don't necessarily find anything. But in my opinion, after working in phase two and phase three cardiac rehab, after doing diagnostic stress testing, both pulmonary and cardiac, you kind of need to keep looking, you need to keep digging, you have to keep going back to the monitors because we do need to capture this to fully understand what it is. And until we understand what it is, there's really no good recommendations that can be given other than the one that the doctor has given at this point in time, which is it might be time to sort of back off, slow down a little bit. Let's remove some of that stress. Let's remove hopefully some of that inflammation. Let's remove some of potentially these causes and put the cardiac tissue back in a place where maybe it can be a little bit more healthy. So that, that's my biggest thing. And unfortunately, I'm putting on my, my medical hat at this point in time, you know, but as, as Trevor mentioned, we're not doctors. We are knowledgeable in this area, but a doctor is really the person, you know, and I don't want that to sound like a cop out, but a doctor is the person that needs to be giving the advice here. If you do notice that you're having these high heart rates, you look down at your heart rate monitor and you were at 120 beats a minute a second ago, and, and now you're at 200 beats a minute. One technique that you can try to help get yourself out of that arrhythmia is the Valsalva maneuver, right? And, and that's sort of to close off your throat, to bear down, to increase the pressure in your thoracic cavity. And that can actually reset sort of your vagal nerve to hopefully bring that heart rate back down. It, it doesn't work all the time, but it literally, I have seen it pull people out of arrhythmias before. And that can be sort of a difference between keeping you safe and uh, having an event that's you know, tough to come back from. I think the, the message that we want to leave this on in general when you're talking about cardiac arrhythmias in athletes is this whole concept that it might be potentially different in athletes is very new. And this, so this research is in the early phases. So we don't know a lot. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to do future episodes with some experts on this who can come in and give you a little more information on it. But as Rob said... Right now, we can't really do, you know, a lot of the doctors couldn't even do diagnosis right now. We certainly can't. And unfortunately, this just isn't one that we can, we can give you a lot of questions. We can't give you a lot of answers. Mm. 
I, we could talk forever uh, about this. I would note that we did an episode long ago. It's now almost four years old. Too much of a good thing? Question mark. Heart arrhythmias in endurance athletes. That was recorded with uh, Leonard Zinn, who was the co-author on a book that I wrote about heart arrhythmias in endurance athletes. I note that it's four years ago because there's been so much research in the last four years that some of the things we said in that episode might not actually hold true. But I think uh, you'll hear Leonard's story will will resonate with a lot of people who might have recently been diagnosed or felt some weird things going on with their hearts because he went through a, quite a journey trying to figure out the denial stage, the frustration stage, the depression stage, all of that until he, he found some amount of resolution. So it might be helpful for people. So that was episode 40. Wow, that far back. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the, the one positive I will give is back when you were writing that book and you asked me to look it over, I looked for research on AFib and athletes and there just wasn't a lot. Yeah. The pace at which it's coming out now is extraordinary. Like this is really something that's becoming a focus. And if there's any positive, we don't have any answers, mm-hmm. but we're they're, they're really looking for them right now. <laughs> right, right. Well, on that last note, it's interesting talking about the large volume and, and how that can elicit some issues. Let's turn our attention to a question from Vlad Georgievich. I hope I have that uh, pronunciation correct. He has a question about building stamina. He is an ultra cyclist. Here's his question. Using ultracycling as the context for the following question, what physiological adaptations need to take place to increase cycling resilience and robustness, which he describes as multiple days of 20 hours per day of riding? By resilience, I mean the ability to maintain a selected power for extended time, and robustness is the ability to ride a high power duration, for example, threshold, recover from it, and do it again many times. What are the types of training processes that increase resilience and robustness? And also, how would you quantify these two aspects of performance, i.e., which metrics would you track? We have talked about this before, and as you know from our conversations with Dr. Seiler, this is something he's looking into because there really aren't metrics for this. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be a metric to look at what your, your, your stamina is like. And one of the things that he's been looking at and we've certainly talked with him about is looking at cardiac drift, which is that rise in your heart rate relative to your power. And as long as you're staying well hydrated, that can actually be a pretty good indicator of, of what, so he's been referring to as stamina, what your stamina is like. The thing that actually really caught my attention in this is, he said, ability to maintain selected power for extended time and robustness is the ability to ride a high power duration, for example, threshold, recover from it and do it again many times. If he's talking about 20 hours per day, you're not riding that threshold. No, I would think not. I mean, to give you an example, you if you talk about marathon runners, marathon is is three hours, so... By, by these standards, that, that's pretty short. Mm-hmm. If he's talking 20 hours a day. And marathon runners will tend to run pretty close to that aerobic threshold, nowhere near anaerobic threshold. So if you're doing long events like this, that's not what you should be focusing on. You're going to be riding at much lower intensities. Right. The question about robustness or the ability to repeat taxing efforts day after day, that's where things get interesting. And I want to tackle this in a few ways because I think that there are multiple points of failure. Some of the ones to note, low energy availability, which can lead to both acute and chronic decreases in performance, as well as endocrine system changes due to the increased systemic stress. 
I think that we have to consider endocrine, uh, hormonal system changes that are well documented from overtraining research from people like Dr. Brooks, Dr. Musin, and others. I also think that we need to consider autonomic system recovery, basically what heart rate variability is doing, and then also microtrauma to the muscle fibers because that can result in inflammation and decreased contractility. So for the general endocrine system changes, those that are associated with overtraining, they can be reduced for a particularly long or arduous event by minimizing the difference between a rider's standard workload and that of the event. If you like to ride a lot for consecutive days, your body needs to be accustomed to riding a lot. However, for most individuals, this alone can induce overtraining. And as such, careful attention needs to be paid to recovery techniques, feeding, exercise intensity, emotional stress, and other factors that help avoid overtraining in day-to-day -day training. However, if a rider is able to pull off this large volume of lower intensity training, then they're likely going to be strong at oxidizing fat for fuel, which is beneficial when we bring up energy availability. Now, the beginning of that answer probably hasn't been too controversial, but the next part may be. I think the key to robustness is strength in plyometric training. Before anyone gets too upset, I want to preface this by saying that as discovered by Dr. Ronstad in his paper, High Volume of Endurance Training Impairs Adaptations to 12 Weeks of Strength Training in Well-Trained Endurance Athletes, that's a mouthful, trained cyclists will not get swole, right? Everybody repeat that. <laughs> somebody, I'm not saying that. I'm not Somebody that. riding their bike a lot cannot get bulky from their lifting. It's just not going to happen. And, and we don't necessarily see weight gain in any of these strength studies. However, dozens of studies have correlated strength and plyometric training with improvements in cycling economy and endurance performance. But I'm going to highlight one from a different Norwegian group, which is the Sunday paper about maximal strength training improves cycling economy and competitive cyclists. Their subjects completed four sets of four half squats for eight weeks, and they did this three times a week in addition to their standard endurance training. They had no change in body mass, but they saw a 17% improvement in time to exhaustion. This indicates a performance improvement, but they also saw a 5% improvement in cycling economy, which is significant in the reduction of caloric expenditure and also intake that a rider needs to have. That gets to the low energy availability side of this. All they did were half squats, you half, said? Half squats, yep. Not even the full. They, they copped out early. <laughs> With various studies, a lot of mechanisms are cited. We can have improved contractility. We can have alterations in fiber properties. But one of the most compelling ones, in my opinion, is the increase in stiffness of the musculotendinous unit. Even in the absence of strength gains, because some studies actually don't see a, a large rise in strength, but they still see an increase in economy it's been attributed to the increased energy return of that muscle and tendon stiffness. This is especially apparent in the sister sport of running as compared to cycling. So the improvements in muscle structure are also beneficial to the decrease in microtrauma that can be associated with the high rep work that a rider is going to experience over these multiple long days. This would maintain the fibers contractility, it would decrease inflammation, that would otherwise hamper performance. We see this because we know that markers of muscle damage decrease with chronic lifting, things like creatine kinase. And then also we feel this because, well, frankly, you get less sore as you continue strength training. So for the aspect of robustness, I wouldn't necessarily track a particular metric. I'd look at consistently and thoughtfully increasing riding volume and weight training volume throughout the course of a build 
toward an event like this. The events that are most similar uh, to the nature of your question are, are the Grand Tours. And uh, Dr. Alejandro Lucia has, has basically made a career of studying Tour de France riders. I think this model is great. I think that we need to convince Trevor that a trip to the tour is warranted for uh, Fast Talk Labs this year. <laughs> so I'd definitely check out his research if you want to know a little bit more here. Ryan, I know you've uh, had some talks with Vlad. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about this. I think, well, to your point, we've, we've, that's come up about um, just how high of a power can you actually ride for this. And what we ended up going toward is really trying to consider, yeah, just how much time are you spending on the bike? And it's really less about the focus on what kind of metric or what kind of power can I put out and more about what are all of those 10,000 other things that will affect your ability to recover and ride day after day that you need to think about. So like when Rob yeah, mentioned the profile of mood state, that's yeah, hugely useful thing to look at and um, just getting it and you know not that you have to measure that every day or, or or take that and assess it but just to get an idea of your mood that's going to I, I feel like have a bigger determinant on getting through the second day of 20 hours per day let alone multiple days of trying to ride at threshold and come back so yeah I think it's I think you tied it up well Rob in the end when you're just kind of like we have all these things we need to be thoughtful and consistent with what we do the strength piece, yeah, that should be a piece of it. And um, I think just we need to really not focus as much on specific metrics as like what are all the other things that we're doing around here that allow us to just get on the bike the next day and keep moving. Because with any any ultra athletes that I've worked with over the years, a lot of, the, a lot of it came back to like constant forward progress. At a certain point, it doesn't matter what your FTP is, what your, what your critical power is. It's just you need to keep moving. And if you do that, you're going to be in good shape. Can I ask you guys what you think when we come to limitations in, in an event like this, how much of it is physiological and how much of it is psychological? Well, I was going to jump in from personal experience. It wasn't a race, but my adventure, if you will, would like to call it that, around Iceland last summer was maybe 12 to 14 hours a day. So, you know, half of what Vlad's talking about. A minuscule amount. A minuscule amount, amount in comparison. All of these things that you're talking about are interesting and for the for certain athletes would be critical to making huge a huge difference in how they performed. But for me, I think the biggest factor was the mindset you brought to it from the beginning. Like I'm doing this because I want to. I'm doing this because I'm I know it's going to be hard and it's going to be huge and and and, and for me, it was, I know it's something I've never experienced before, physically, mentally, emotionally. Maybe Vlad has done this before and he's just trying to improve. I was just doing it for the first time. That mindset you bring to it from the beginning, but also the mindset you wake up with every day, if you can turn that into a positive thing, like, like Ryan was saying, at some point you're basically cracked in some way, but you still have to do it. So be positive about that. Well, today I'm going to see this, or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to ride, you know, I'm, I'm going to tick over a mileage that I've never completed in a, in a certain number of days today, or whatever it is, create those miniature goals within this gigantic goal, because it's really hard to, to wrap your head around 20 hours per day for X number of days. That's, that's uh, crazy in, in some ways. So I, I really do think that the psychology here is far more important than it is in a lot of other aspects of cycling. I also, I would not separate the mental side from the, the physiological side. 
I know a fair number of coaches that like to use the POMS test, and that's, that's basically a mental states test, mm-hmm. literally in the title. You can see signs of overreach and overtraining appear in that test before you're ever going to see it in the numbers. So I do think the two are very closely linked, and you, you really can't separate them. All right. Well, we could talk about ultra endurance events, ultra cycling a lot more, but we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for all of the, the great tips and information. Fast Talk Laboratories offers deep dives into your favorite training topics, including interval training, data analysis, sports nutrition, and now indoor cycling. Our new indoor cycling pathway is now available and it's perfectly timed to help you lay the foundation for an awesome season. In our new indoor cycling pathway, Joe Friel, Dr. Steven Seiler, Dr. Andy Pruitt, and I show how indoor and outdoor riding is different, how to adjust, and how to avoid biomechanical problems. We explore Zwift as a training tool and share how you can make indoor cycling a more effective way to meet your training goals. Complete our indoor cycling pathway and you will know the path forward in your own indoor riding. More than half of this pathway is available to our free listener member level. Learn more at fasttalklabs.com slash pathways. Let's turn our attention to a question about cramping in junior athlete. This one comes from Matthew Thatcher, and he's writing to us about his 15-year-old son. My son races cyclocross and mountain biking in the French Coupes, French Cup. For him, it's 40 to 60 minutes. Sometimes toward the end of the race, he starts to get cramps. What to do? He drinks an electrolyte drink before the race and water during the race and sometimes a gel halfway through. Interestingly, he has just completed a cyclocross season with no cramps. Who wants to take this one? Ryan? Yeah, this one's kind of of fun. And, um, you know, the the fact that he just completed the cross season with no cramps gives a little bit of credence to what my gut feeling was, was that he's a junior. Juniors have very little ability to regulate their effort Mm. and they can just go do so much more than maybe what their bodies can handle. So part of it is I look at this and like, I've seen this before with juniors where, yeah, they just can do so much work that they end up paying for it later, you know, but it's also something where I feel like they grow out of this as they start to develop and they become more aerobically fit and they develop that capacity. And as the seasons go by, I feel like this is something that they eventually sort of work out of just as they develop as part of that process. Mm -hmm. It is interesting because our our initial go-to is always, well, what can we do nutritionally? And, you know, they're talking about the electrolyte drinks and having water during and, and the gel. For such a short event, it's, you know, the nutrition generally isn't the problem, especially in this case, I would, I would say. It's more about, like, this is probably a junior that's, that can do a lot of work and is, is probably going to grow out of this too. You know, the one strategy I would talk about is, okay, what, how, do you, how are you starting? How can we approach this? Are you starting extraordinarily hard where you're just digging this huge hole early on and then kind of paying for it later? Maybe we can talk about that, look at some power files if they have them. But um, this is something where I would look at and say, yeah, if you've completed the cross season with no real issues, maybe you're sort of working out of that. Very good. Rob? Yeah, in in a lot of regards, I agree with Ryan. I I do think that we can see these sort of unspecified cramps in juniors. It sort of happens. A a kid pulls up at the end and he's like, oh, my legs are so cramped. And and you don't quite understand why. It, It wouldn't be the first time I've seen that. 
One interesting point that I sort of latched on to is that it happened presumably during the mountain bike season, but not necessarily during cyclocross. And, and so I began to wonder, is there a, a temperature or an environmental difference between the two of these? I know that the rider has been taking electrolyte drinks before the race. In a lot of times, a junior rider is chronically dehydrated because they're just not good at staying hydrated in general. Is something like the heat of mountain bike exacerbating a situation like this? With the question that we have, it's ultimately really difficult to know because oftentimes how a cramp presents itself can give you some insight into why that athlete is cramping. Is it localized? Is it generalized? So on and so forth. Without that information, it's very hard to say. But ultimately, uh, yeah, pacing might be one of the first things that I would lean on on this one. I'm going to go at uh, just the, the experience level. So we did an episode on cramping. This is episode 26. And now we're really going back. Wow. And we should do an, an update on that episode and, and see what the what new research has come out since then. But I'm, I'm a big believer in the research of Dr. Uh, Swellness that promotes this altered neuromuscular control hypothesis. You really look at the research and this whole belief that electrolytes is the cause of cramping just hasn't panned out. And I know people struggle with this. We say this and we still get questions all the time saying, well, I cramped. I don't think I was taking enough electrolytes. And I, I keep responding going, well, the, the, the research really is showing, sorry, electrolytes don't contribute. So this, this you can listen to the whole episode, but this hypothesis is uh, very quickly is what causes cramping is an imbalance between your muscle spindles and your Golgi tendons, which are control whether your muscles relax or, or tighten. And basically, it causes an imbalance towards just causing your muscles to tighten up. What contributes to that? Muscle damage and fatigue in the muscles. So when you have a new athlete who's fairly new to the sport and they're doing something like mountain biking where you're going to have to hit a lot of little short climbs and power through and you can potentially do some damage, you're definitely going to fatigue those muscles. Doesn't surprise me at all that you're seeing cramping. Their, their muscles just aren't, doesn't have, going back to the, the word that we just heard, doesn't have that robustness or the, that ability to resist that damage and fatigue. But you can very quickly develop that. So I look at this and go, one of the things I'm, I'm potentially seeing is he was going through what I see in a, a lot of new athletes. He was getting that cramping early because his muscles just didn't have that, that ability to resist fatigue and, and damage. And cross, which is a little bit shorter, by then he, he's probably adapted a little bit and his muscles are just better able to resist that. And I always get the Golgi tendons and the, the muscle spindles mixed up, which is the one that caused, I think it's Golgi tendons that cause the muscles to tighten, right? No, it's muscle yeah. spindle. God yep. damn it, I was going to... I know. <laughs> you, hey, you had a 50% chance and you jacked it up. So. I got a 50% chance and I get it right like 1% of the time. <laughs> so it's basically the, the muscle spindles become overexcited. Overexcited. Yeah. When I did Belgian waffle rides, San Diego, gosh, I don't know, three, four years ago at this point, that was the longest, hardest event I had done to date. You know, I had done rides that long. I had done rides that intensity, but never at the same time. And uh, I thought that cramping might be an issue for me. And, and so I took a new to the market thing called Hotshot along with me. And now I don't know if anybody's used Hotshot, but I hadn't used it prior to that, which is <laughs> always a terrible idea. So the event was going really, really well for me. And I was beginning to feel some twinges of cramps in my quads. Nothing major, nothing that was stopping me from riding. 
but also something that I didn't want to get worse. And so I downed that hot Cue shot. Cue the hot shot. Cue the hot That's shot. Good. Prophylactic hot shot at this point in time. Which in and of itself, like I like spicy things. It burned a little bit on the way down, but but that was quite fine. About 30 minutes later, however, the hot shot was really working its effects on McColin. And, oh God. and I, and you were about to have a hot shot. I, I had a hot shot uh, somewhere on the side of the road outside of San Marcos, uh, California. I, I lost a, a nice cycling glove uh, to that oh, cause. Uh, that is somewhere about a uh, hundred feet off the side of the road. It was a very liberating experience, and life was grand from there to the finish line. But it was a bit harrowing for a few miles before that. So uh, be careful uh, when you deal with some of these anti cramp things uh, like hot shot that are bringing back the vagal nerve that we had talked about before. They're supposed to, I believe, stimulate the vagal nerve and, and help induce the relaxation for decreasing cramping there. But uh, try, try, try before you buy. Juice, maybe before you try the hot shot. Maybe. <laughs> Supposedly that works too. So while you were given that story, I looked, I went back to actually Dr. Swellness's... Uh, Trevor being serious over bacon. here. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Trying to ignore the poo-poo uh, story. Just, just buying him some time. You know I always ignore your poo-poo stories. <laughs> it's his poo-poo story, not That's mine. Good. Well, Rob, I'm going to ignore yours as well. <laughs> look at, he's giving he's me this so look like, What? You, you won't listen to my poo-poo story? <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> So I'm just going to read two sentences that are, that are highlighted out of this study. And this was, this was kind of the groundbreaking study that he wrote. So one is, uh, fatigue increases the muscle spindle afferent activity and decreases the Golgi tendon organ. So you're correct, and I keep getting it wrong. So it says, sorry. Uh, and decreases the Golgi tendon organ afferent activity, which may result in increased alpha neuron activity. So that's what leads to the cramping. And then he goes on to say, and this is what I, I personally based on the very little information we have, would, would point towards with this junior athlete. Athletes who compete at a pace that is faster than their usual training pace may develop muscle fatigue early during a race, and this may be a risk factor for EAMC, which is cramping. Yeah, and I think that that makes sense as a theory if we talk about localized cramping and working muscles. I don't necessarily know that that's going to explain more of a generalized cramping and elsewhere in your body. I'm assuming we're talking about localized. And that's, yep. we talked about that in the episode. If you are dealing with body-wide cramping, so systemic cramping, that's very different and that usually indicates an underlying health issue and that's where you should go see your doctor. The moral of the story is, go see your doctor. Yeah, that is what we're kind of getting to today, isn't it? Well, this next uh, subject matter probably doesn't involve physicians. We have two questions here on the subject, general subject of cadence. So I'm going to read both of them and we can try to give a single answer. First one comes from our friend Vlad Georgievich. He writes, so a person takes a metabolic cart test and the test determined that the aerobic threshold occurs at 200 watts and at a cadence of 90 RPM. Will there be a different metabolic state if the exercise was performed at 200 watts but at a cadence of 45? This will require doubling of the force and double the time under tension. Could performing this exercise at substantially lower cadence result in muscles working in a different metabolic regime, i.e. going from mostly fat-burning regime aerobic to sugar-burning mode? Hold that thought. Now I'll read the second part. This, or the second question, this one comes from Jack Burke. Who is an athlete from Toronto who I used to ride with back when he was a junior, and he's now pro. Awesome. All right. 
So he has um, a bunch of thoughts here around high and low cadence training for the well-trained athlete where finding gains becomes harder. So he's writing, I'd like you to discuss the idea around high cadence being placing higher stresses on the heart and central system to improve VO2 max and also improve efficiency so you can save your muscles for the race deciding moves at the end of a race. Also, the idea behind lower cadence to improve muscular endurance. And finally, to keep it simple, for a TT, most people think the optimal cadence is around 90 RPM to put out the most power. But I'm curious about what you guys think about training above 110 RPM, for example, and below 70 RPM to improve both the central and peripheral systems and how best to mesh the two together so you're putting out the most power at the optimal cadence on race day. Trevor, I'm picking on you since you know Jack and I know you love your cadence work. Yeah, I do know Jack. <laughs> we finally admitted to it. You literally know Jack. <laughs> All right, take it away. There is a, a ton to dissect here. I'm not even exactly sure where to start. As you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of low cadence training. Mm-hmm. There's certainly mixed science on this. And again, we did an episode on this back with, uh, with Neil Henderson. I do want to address one thing that Jack brought up, which is he's really seen the the low cadence trains the uh, the peripheral system, or high cadence trains the the central system. I haven't seen any evidence to indicate that. So that goes back to this this old belief of central adaptation versus peripheral adaptation, and a lot of that's well, yes, you have those peripheral and, and central adaptations. This belief that one type of training works one, and another type of training works the other we've really moved away from that. So I, I wouldn't necessarily look at it that way. There was a fascinating review, if you, you want to read some good science on this, by going back to, you mentioned Dr. Ronstad. So he addressed this because he's been doing a lot of research on strength training and wanted to see is low cadence work like strength training. And his conclusion was no. It, you know, you think of it as being like strength training, but really even just doing 40 RPM is like going into the weight room, picking up a three pound weight and trying to do bicep curls. You're going to be there a real long time. So it's not quite the same. You shouldn't think about it that way. In the study, they pointed out, and then I'll I'll throw this to to Ryan, but in the study, they pointed out that there are U-shaped relationships with efficiency and VO2. So it's a... um, it has a U-shaped relationship with VO2, which means that when you're between about 50 and 80 RPM you have lower oxygen consumption. And on the either side, when you're doing very low cadence or very high cadence, you're going to see higher oxygen consumption. You see an inverted U with efficiency. So again, 50 to 80 RPM, you're going to be more efficient. When you start getting below 50 and above 80, you start to see that drop in efficiency. But what they didn't address in this review, but I've seen in in previous studies is in untrained athletes, the most efficient cadence is actually quite low. It's about 60 RPM. That's a really important thing to point out because a lot of the beginning research on this subject was done with just university right. gym class students who were not habituated right. cyclists. But they continued that research and discovered that in highly trained cyclists, the most efficient cadence is actually much higher, up, up towards 90, even 100. And that's something that they train. So that's important to keep in mind. And with that... Uh, Ryan or Rob, any any further thoughts on this? Yeah, I can pick apart the first part on here. Um, and when I was thinking about it, I did it. Uh, I broke it into two questions. 
The first is, is there a change in metabolism when cycling at a steady workload at different cadences? And the second is, does that potentially influence a metabolic uh, event, I'm going to say, like a, like a threshold of VT1, VT2, so on and so forth? As I pointed out, you know, I'm answering this from the perspective of a trained cyclist, not, not from the beginner unhabituated. The other caveat that we need to know is that any of the research that looks at varying cadence, oftentimes what we see is a, a decrease in measures like economy as somebody uh, utilizes a technique that's new to them that they're not habituated to. But then oftentimes economy can uh, improve back to baseline or even improve beyond baseline once the cyclist had some time pedaling with that new cadence or that new technique. So if we go beyond that and really into the science of this now, uh, back in 1975, right, this is some basic science that's been happening for a long time. Dr. Geyser and Brooks, uh, they were looking at muscular efficiency during steady state exercise, the effect of speed and work rate. And it was really clear um, that even cycling with no load, and, and I'm really confining my recommendations to general cadences we would expect from a cyclist. So as, as Trevor said, there's a U-shaped, but really uh, that only involves the really low cadences as well. And so if we're looking at, say, cadences in the 50 to 60 range versus cadences in the 90 to 100 range, what we see is that pedaling at that faster speed, 90 to 100 instead of 50 to 60, just the movement alone is going to cause more oxygen consumption. We're going to see increases in heart rate. We're going to see increases in lactate concentration simply because we're moving our body faster, right? So yes, 100%. There are going to be metabolic changes that you see with the faster pedaling rate. The opposite side of that is does it matter? In 2014, uh, Beneke, in his paper, High Cycling Cadence Reduces Carbohydrate Oxidation at a Given Low-Intensity Metabolic Rate, really tackled this question. Uh, they confirmed that at 50 RPM, oxygen utilization, lactate, carbohydrate utilization, all of that was lower at 50 versus 100 RPM. Now, if we tackle that second question of whether or not this affects a metabolic event like threshold, as a continuation to that Beneke study above, the increase in VCO2 that they saw during that study with the faster cadence would likely have caused an increase in their ventilatory threshold sooner in an incremental test. Uh, that parallels an increase in lactate concentration that they saw at the higher cadences for the same workload. Uh, so that would suggest that any measured threshold or breakpoint is going to occur at a lower absolute workload when you're pedaling faster meaning 90 to 100 versus when you're pedaling slower in the 50 to 60 range. One study that really highlighted the effect on cadence of threshold was a, a paper in 2006 by, I believe it's a Spanish researcher, Deneday. I'm butchering that, my apologies, but we'll get the reference up, where they looked at maximal lactate steady state concentration being independent of pedal cadence in active individuals. What's really interesting about that title is it's somewhat misleading because they're correct in that the maximal lactate steady state concentration was the same regardless of the cadence. It was about 4.8 millimoles in both of the groups. However, the workload at MLSS was dramatically different. The 50 RPM test actually achieved maximal lactate steady state at 186 watts versus 148 for the 100 RPM group. So we're going to have a study off here. <laughs> uh -oh. Back at you, I got a 2016 study uh -oh. from Witty. Bring it, son. Dr. Witty, yeah. Just this one is 
High cadence seemed to improve efficiency, but low cadence seemed to improve time trial power. Didn't go too much into the, the explanation here, but going back to, to Ronestad, and I think this is getting back to the question of what are the benefits of doing low cadence versus high cadence. Dr. Ronestad basically said, we can't conclude that it's beneficial just yet, but said the potential effects are increased activation of the quadriceps, uh, more fast twitch muscle fiber recruitment when you're doing low cadence. And this is the big one for me, more neural stimulus. I've talked about this before. I am a big believer in neuromuscular training. I think it's a, a way of getting gains without having to have your tongue hanging out and you'd be surprised at the sort of gains. And what you do see is both low cadence training and high cadence training are very effective at training that neuromuscular side. So I'm very big with my athletes on not only polarizing their their intensity, but polarizing their cadence. So don't have them just sit there and ride at race cadence all the time. I have them do some dedicated low cadence work. I also have them do some dedicated high cadence work. So right now we're in the winter. When I have them do threshold work on, on the trainer, I want them to have their cadence 100 plus RPM, which is a struggle, but it just gives that little bit of extra neuromuscular work and can improve that efficiency. Whoa. Whoa, look at that. The science off who sunk whose battleship here? This isn't even a nerd lab episode. <laughs> I know. And Trevor and I are, are being a little spicy. But good answers. I think we've given both Jack and Vlad and the rest of the listeners out there a lot to think about. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Trevor Connor, Ryan Kohler, and Rob Pickles, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>